Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for this day and for bringing us here safely. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which challenges and comforts us. Uh, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear your word today. Have it speak to us. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, today we're going to talk about Joseph the Dreamer. This is a great story. And uh, we are going to talk about what Joseph's plan is, or sorry, what Joseph's role is in the life of of the people of Israel. Um, You have a couple things there in front of you. We're going to be talking about Joseph and his brothers and lots of different things. So you have in front of you this graphic. There's a few copies on the table. These are, this is the family lineage of, uh, of Jacob. If you look, Okay, everybody have this in front of them? You don't, have to, you don't have to have this, but we're going to be talking about lots of brothers and their mothers. <laughs> and uh, this is the... And yeah. So we've been talking all along the past several... Well, since the beginning of this, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? I'm a, you guys all get settled. Um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God which reveals himself to the nation, to the Jews, which become the nation of Israel. Now, um, if you look here, you'll see Abraham and Sarah, right? And then if you look down, you see Isaac and Rebekah. And there's people that are left out of this drawing, by the way, but this just is to make it simple. And then if you see, you see Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. Jacob stole his brother's birthright and lied to the old man, which we're going to see plays out again today. And then Jacob has 12 sons through a combination of wives and concubines. That's another whole story. But you'll see at the very bottom in the blue, 12 blue people, which are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher and Diana, but she is not a son. The 12 sons of Jacob become, Jacob's name is changed to what? Israel, which means wrestles with God, which we didn't even talk about. Um, I guess we'll talk about that next time. Um, And then the 12 sons of, of Jacob become the 12, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, their progeny being known as Israelites, right? You with me? So it actually all hangs together, the point being that there's this thread that, and it repeats all through the Old Testament and actually even into the New Testament. Um, but it starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then they got the 12 sons, and then we begin to see those 12 sons and they're the Israelites, the, the, uh, their, the, rest of the, New, the rest of the Old Testament from here on in is all about these 12 tribes of Israel and their dealings with their God. And as I said last time, it always interests me that God names his people those who wrestle with me, right? Wrestle with God. So just for your information, hang on to this if you're curious about it. It'll help you. And as we're talking about 
um, Joseph today, which if you notice is right here, and incidentally the boys are listed in chronological order. Reuben is the oldest, Asher is the youngest, and you will see Joseph there who is the son of Jacob and uh, Rachel. So, any questions on that? Because Joseph, is Joseph the oldest? No, but as you'll see, he becomes a man of extreme importance in the Old Testament. So, um, let's go ahead and uh, read, the, um, read the text for today. Anybody have their scripture? Yes, Janie, sure. Of course. Yeah, it all, yeah, you will, yeah, it, this very, you will, yeah, if you, it's, Janie's point was she'd never noticed that J, Joseph and Rachel were mentioned in the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob story. The names, in the Old Testament, the names are sort of, there, there, you'll see it when we go through, and you'll go, I never noticed that before. It's all there, and if you begin to, if you read the Old, Old Testament narrative, I should say this, Old Testament narrative is very, is known for its paucity of language. It's very, there's not a lot of elaboration. So a person's not, name might be mentioned once, and that's it. But it's meant that you're supposed to remember that. So you have to read the Old Testament slowly and, and digest it, because there's a lot of information, information in there that you might not get the first time around. So we're going to go ahead and read Joseph, uh, sorry, the story of, um, of this. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go through. You ready? OK. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Look at the graph, they're there. His father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Someone to turn their phone off? Thank you. Were bowing down to me. Verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? 
Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he went from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Then he saw them from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come, now let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of the hand to restore him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our own hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in it, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and what shall I do? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in his blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is, is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob, Jacob tore, his gar tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so uh, anything jump out at you before we dive into the text? There's a lot in here, but anything jump out at you that you would not noticed before? And again, if you hold on to this little graph, this may help you keep the characters in mind. Anything? Father Switz. Well, I like the fact that the uh, <laughs> Father Switz said he's glad that they decided to sell him for a profit. Incidentally, 20 pieces of silver is the price of a slave, which is the same, if you account for inflation, when Jesus was sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, likewise the price of a slave or a servant. Don't miss the parallel, it's clear. Yes, uh, Lynn, you had a comment? Mm -hmm. um, he was a boy with the sons of Milhah and Milhah. Right. Okay, now that's two of the concubines. Correct. I'm confused. Okay. He was a boy with 
with, if you look at the, okay, so Joseph was with the boy, was a boy, meaning he's 17, he's not quite a man at 18, I guess, but he is with Bilhah and Zilpah, and those two brothers he was with were named Gad and Asher. See it on here? They're not named in the text, but you can see it from here. So yes, Joseph had, so the, the nation of Israel had concubines as the women that bear, bore the two of the youngest children. Oh, I don't know which, I don't know. That's a good question. Oh. That's, that, I don't think it makes a distinction. No, it, it just says I don't know. That's a good question. That's a very good question. So Lynn's question is, which one was which? I don't know, actually. And I don't think the, te the text may or may not say, but it looks like from this graph, the text is not clear. So we know that Bilhah and Zilpah, Gad and Asher were sons of at least those two. But who, which, I don't know. Any other questions or comments? Let me say a couple of things by way of introduction before we dive into this text. Um, most people read this story and they think, man, what a terrible thing to do. Look at this family's dysfunction. Look at what a horrible family and dad and kids and Joseph. That kid Joseph, man, that kid had it coming to him. He's a brat with a big mouth. That's all true. That is all true. This is a story about a dysfunctional family, which we all have, right? Uh, so that's the one point I want you to see is that the, the Bible, actually it's unique in all religious literature, that it pulls no punches with the brokenness and the fallenness of the characters within it. Okay, there no, The scripture is very plain that there is all sorts of brokenness and fallenness and sin amongst the characters in the story. Okay, first point. The second point is though that despite all of that, God is actually going to use these events for good. One thing that nobody knows yet in the story, but God, being omniscient, <laughs> does know, is that there's something coming down the pike called a famine. And he knows that he has got, that Joseph, the boy, uh, sorry, that they, he, God knows there's a famine coming and God is going to get one of his chosen to Egypt, which is a very wealthy kingdom of the time, in order to run the show once the famine comes. You see my point? What I want you to see, as a pastoral point, I want you to see this. This is not a story of Joseph and his brothers duking it out. It is on the surface, and they are bad, broken, fallen people, or part of them, most of them are. But what I want you to see here, this is so important as a pastoral matter for you and for me, is to see that even in the midst of human brokenness and fallenness, which we all have in our families and our own, own hearts, God still can work. Does that make sense? So, I want, so could God, did God make all this stuff happen uh, to get him to Egypt? That I can't tell you. What I can tell you is that God uses the events of the brothers' free will to choose to want to kill their brother and sell him to the Ishmaelites. We'll get to that in a minute. But even behind all that surface level, God is still somehow in control. And of course, the obvious question is, well, how does God reconcile human free will and his provident omniscience? I have the foggiest idea. But what's clear in the text is that people make decisions, but God's will is not thwarted. Is that so in your own lives, You've all got families with brokenness, and you're all, you have got brokenness, and you're all sinners, and so am I. God knows. But God can still work through that. 
It gives, of course it gives you hope because it's not about you. If we, if we were hoping on our own will to accomplish the things of this world, we'd all be in deep trouble. I would be. But as, before we launch into this, I want you just to read this not as a story of family dysfunction, which it is, but it's more a family of God's love and providence despite family dysfunction. Okay? Lynn? Then I'm going to dive in. These 12 brothers yep. became the 12 tribes of Israel. That's overwhelming. Yes. The point is when you recognize that these 12 boys become the progenitors, the, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's overwhelming. And in fact, if you look at this graph here, if you look at number one, two, three, four, in from the left, Judah, that, no, 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 sorry, Benjamin, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, is the lineage through which Jesus comes. Right? It's Benjamite. Is it Benjamin or Judah? I forget. Judah, thank you. That's right. And here's the great irony. Yes, and uh, Kira nailed it. Here's the great one thing you have to recognize about the Old Testament it is full of irony. Here's the irony here. They try to kill their brother Joseph. If they hadn't tried to kill their brother Joseph, they all would have died in a famine. So the point I want, and I just want you to see a recurring theme in the Old Testament, what seems like surface nonsense, when you dig into it and you, and you grasp the gravity of it, you see the great irony of the Old Testament, that God works not only despite human sinfulness, but God actually accomplishes his will in an ironic way. And you see that over and over again. Jesus, when he is killed, he is hung on the cross. And what does the titulus over the cross say? The king of the Jews, right? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, which Pilate meant as a mockery, but it's actually, ironically, true. It's wonderful. Anyway, thank you for that observation. Okay, let's, let's jump in here. So, um, Joseph, Joseph being 17 years old is out, in the, is, uh, out in, with his brothers um, from Bil, uh, Bilha and Zilpha, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph, the first thing it says is that Joseph is a rat, a snitch, okay? He's a snitch, and the reason he's a snitch, it says there, is now Israel, Jacob and Israel are the same person, right? Um, loved Joseph more than any of the other sons. Does that sound kind of familiar? Remember who Jacob is. Jacob had a brother named what? Esau, right? And mama loved Jacob, but daddy loved Esau. Do you see the favoritism? Think back at the generation before Abraham. There's two boys, Isaac and Ishmael. Which was daddy's favorite? Isaac. So the, again, another theme you see recurring through here is human favoritism um, it's on the surface causing dysfunction and it, in reality causing dysfunction. But a recurring theme is that uh, favoritism amongst siblings causes sibling rivalry. Anybody ever had that in your family before? Of course not. Never. It even goes back to Adam and Eve. It goes back to Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel. Sure does. So, so if you've got jealousy amongst your kids, guess what? You're in good company. And you do. Yes? Well, it, it might be explained as well because it looks like Joseph child of Jacob and Rachel. Jo Jacob and is... Jacob and Ra Jake, Rachel was who Jacob really was. Yes, that's a good point. Ja Joseph is the first son of, of Rachel and Jacob, and of course Rachel was the one that he really 
loved. Good point. But let's move on. I don't want to get stuck in detail. We've got 25 minutes to cover 30 chapters, 30 verses. So Joseph makes, sorry, Jacob makes Joseph a robe of many colors. Did anyone ever see that play, the technical? I've never seen it. It's not a, but it, the, the robe here, it's interesting. Uh, to have color in the ancient Near East was a symbol of great wealth. In fact, in the New Testament, we hear about a woman, uh, Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth in Corinthians, I think. And that is a purple cloth is a mark of wealth. So the fact that daddy not only favors Joseph of all the boys, but gives him a BMW <laughs> shows you not only that the boys are jealous, but guess what? Daddy's not helping the matter. And so do you, do you see, and then verse 4, but when the brothers saw their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully about him. Um, what do you make of all that? Is, Joseph, is Jacob at fault for what's about to happen? In a sense, he is. Is Joseph at fault for what's about to happen? Yes, yes he is, because Joseph's got a big mouth and doesn't want to keep his mouth shut. Are the boys at fault? because what's about to happen? Yes, they are, because they're jealous. Sin is an insidious destroyer of relationships. It is insidious, and it's unavoidable. But again, I want you to see that God's plan and providence, and actually, you're going to see at the end of the story, Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers is, is all throughout this text. I'll give you a little fast forward. At the very end of the story, after the, great, the famine and if you read everything from here on in, and Genesis is about Joseph. The whole thing shifts from, um, from the story of Jacob to the story of Joseph in Egypt. And at the very end of it all, does anybody know the brothers come back to see Joseph after the famine and they realize what they've done? Father thinks he's been dead for all these years. And Joseph says something startling. He says, you intended it for evil, but God intended this for good. Amen to that. What's that? That's right. Well, I'm sure he wanted to. Um, so, this, so there's two different things going on here. There is, um, in, in verses 2 through 11, we see that family strife, there's two dynamics going on here, and they're, they're, they interplay with each other. They're an interaction. There's the family jealousy, and there's also Joseph and his big mouth. And those two things collide to cause a, these two plots work together to create this narrative tension that resolves itself at the end of the chapter. So, let's move on. So, verse 6, Joseph said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold. Remember I told you about the word behold? What does it mean? Look, Look pay attention. This is important. He says to them, Behold, we, all of us, were binding up sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. These guys are not uh, farmers. They are what? Shepherds. Shepherds. But, but later on, where, where's this imagery of this? Is what Joseph's telling them prophetic? Sure. It is. Why? Because when they go to Egypt, it's corn that they raise, I think, right? Or wheat. And, and, and those sheaves are what are, are symbolic of the food that feeds them. So they... Uh, but he says to them, my, these sheaves bow down, yours bow down to mine. And at the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, when the brothers meet Joseph, what do they do? 
they bow down on the ground. So is Joseph telling them something true? Is he saying it in a way which maybe he ought to rethought what he said? Uh, well, is he, is he arrogant? Yes or no? Maybe. Is he also speaking prophetically? He is. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. What's he going, what do you think he's talking about? What's the sun? Well, the sun is, uh, sorry? His, well, maybe. Where, where do they go? What, where, they go to Egypt. Egypt's, Egypt's ruler is named what? Pharaoh, who is the what? The god of the sun. Ra. Later on, uh, so that's what that is. The moon is symbolic. Sun and moon are usually used for these pagan religions. And who are the 11 stars? The, the, the brothers. Shall I? And then, um, what is this dream? And so, but when he had said this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. That word is actually a pretty strong word. Hey, Joe, listen, you're a good kid. You may be a little naive, you're 17 years old, but you're going to get a whooping if you don't knock it off, right? You need to maybe think a little bit more clearly. He rebukes him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Can anybody ever think of another spot where a person says that they kept these things in their mind or they treasured them in their heart? Right? Mary, about Jesus, hears these things and everybody is scandalized for it, but Mary treasures them in his heart, meaning that um, Joseph, Jacob reprimands the boy, but then he goes, there's something going on here. I'm not sure what to make of it, but there's something bigger picture that I'm going to stew on and I'm going to consider. Let me stop there. What are your reactions to this story so far? Anybody have any observations or questions? Well, that's a good question. Bob's question, is, Bob's question was, God did not reveal himself to Joseph, or did he? In the dream. It's a problem because we, we don't know that yet. The brothers and the, 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 think about it, the brothers and the dad and the mom, presumably, are all scandalized by young Joe's arrogance, right? But is, it, is what he says true? And the answer is yes. So I would actually argue, Bob, that it actually, in fact, is God speaking to Joseph prophetically in a dream. Jacob has a, yes, Jacob has a dream of going up the ladder as well. Yeah, there's a lot of repeating imagery here. So I want, the point I want you to see here, this is actually, I want to move on, an observation to make about all the characters in the story, whether it's Joseph and his big mouth, but is also actually prophetic. He's received a prophetic utterance. You've got the father who refuses to restrain the boy. You've got the brothers who are all jealous. What you see in the Old Testament narrative is that you see characters that are incredibly complex, right? They are a mixture of good and bad. They are a mixture of God's work on them or not. They are a mixture of being willing to be faithful and listen to the Lord, but also they're stubborn and say dumb things. Anybody relate to that here? <laughs> 
And the reason that's so important, again, um, unless you've studied other religions, which many of you, some of you have, most other religions paint the characters in the story as these people you want to strive to be like. That is not true of the Old Testament, or largely the New Testament either, except for Jesus. What you, instead, what you see are people that are just broken, fallen messes. Not totally bad, but broken and fallen. But God still works through them anyway. Amen? Amen. Okay. Um, so, what we see then, um, then he dreamed another dream, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in mind. Verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. Now, Shechem is, um, they're leaving where they were and going out into a remote place. Dothan is, you wouldn't know this, Dothan is like very, uh, it's like uh, um, Yeehaw Junction, there ain't nothing out there. So, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Jacob is unwitt unwittingly sending his son to a conspiracy. <laughs> and he said, and Joseph said to his dad, here I am. Does anybody hear, does that sound familiar? Does that ring a little bell? Where do, you, where do we hear here I am before? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, I'm sending you to a land which I'll show you later. And Abraham says, here I am. Or Abraham, I'm going to send you and you're going to take Isaac uh, and you're going to kill the boy and Abraham says, here I am. The point being, Joseph's heart, one thing you see a glimmer of it here, and, you, and as you, the story unfolds, it, it, it becomes more obvious. You see, with that little expression in Hebrew, here I am, what you see is a person who is willing to listen to God's direction. Didn't Jacob say that too? Yes. And in fact, it's the mark, is the, that obedience and a willingness to listen to God's direction is a mark of all of the heroes, as broken as they are, in the Old Testament. Not that they're, not that they're perfect, but that they're faithful, right? So when he, that little nugget there, and he said, here I am. So, he said, so, so Jacob said to Joseph, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Isn't it interesting that Jacob is worried about his sons? And he sends Joseph to go check on them when, unbeknown to Jacob, they're plotting to kill him, or they will. So, Joseph, so Jacob sent Joseph from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And this is, this is really cool. And a man found him wandering in the field. Who do you think that might be? What do you think? Maybe God. Could be. It could be. The, this man wandering, is, okay, now he's leaving a relatively habited area into the wilderness, and there just happens to be a person out there. Does that sound familiar to anybody? John. John? Well, uh, anybody hear of Melchizedek before? Okay. Or um, the, uh, well, Melchizedek is a great example. Who, and, and the man found him. Notice, he didn't find the man, the man found him. That's really important. The man is either an angel or a, a person that God has using as an instrument of his own will. We don't know for sure, but this man appears out of nowhere and found him and the man asked him, what? What are you doing? Has anybody ever walked up to you out of the blue and said, what are you seeking when you're walking around in Yeehaw Junction in the field? Does that happen? Uh, At Publix, maybe. 
What are you seeking? And that, that's a very good question, actually. What is he seeking? It's a, listen, it's closely. It's a, a lot of scripture has a surface meaning and a far deeper meaning. What actually is Joseph seeking? He's actually seeking God's will. He doesn't know it yet. Does he know it? No. But is he following God's will? Yes, he is. But he doesn't know it. It's subtle. It's, and, and don't miss it. It's an it's a Old Testament turn of phrase. I, I, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which is really remote. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. But notice what he's doing. He, God has placed, has anybody ever placed somebody in your life who pointed you in a direction? And maybe you didn't even realize it at the time, but you look back on it and go, Woo, thank that per boy, that person was at the right place at the right time. Ever happened to you? Yeah. Guess what? You're in good company. God places, this man is either an angel, we don't know, or a person placed in there in, in a spot to point him in a Godward direction. That'll preach. Yes? Chris, uh, this is so interesting, and there's a lot of quotes in here. Uh, who, who wrote it? Who wrote what? Moses. Moses. Yes. First five books of the, the first five books of the scriptures were written by Moses. So, but notice something here. Everything from the everything again, bear in mind the bigger, bigger picture. Everything from the uh, the the brother Joseph's big mouth to the this errand his father's put him on, to this man that's in this field wandering around, who is seeking him, oddly enough, all that stew is actually working for one purpose. And what's that one purpose? To get Joseph to Egypt. Don't miss the big picture. Any questions on that? Well, that's actually right. And, and actually, that's a good point. And not only, and that's actually a good point. Let me back up on that for a second. Because if, if the Savior of the world is to come from one of those 12 tribes of Israel, right, Judah, we don't know this yet, but if the savior of the world is to come from that lineage, that means that somebody has got to go to Egypt and save that family to keep the family line. I mean, this is not just about saving Joseph and his brothers. This is about saving you. Because without Joseph and his brothers and Judah and down the lineage, Jesus being born, you and I would not have an opportunity to eternal life. Do you see the point? It's a huge story with incredibly important um, implications for you and I. This is not just about Joseph and his brothers. It's about, it's about the Savior of the world who comes through the lineage of Israel. Paul. So when this was written by Moses, was he writing down with past oral tradition? Or was it given That's a very good question. I'm not going to get into that today because I've got 20 minutes to go. Good question, but for another day. Sorry. It's a very good question, and an academically good one because mosaic authorship has uh, largely been dismissed in a lot of places. I don't believe that. I know the arguments, but it's a rabbit trail I don't want to chase today. Sorry, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, so let's move on. Um, then they saw him from afar before he came near to them. Verse 18, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come, let us now kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, that word for kill 
is a Hebrew word which actually describes slaughtering an animal. There's lots of words for kill, right? You can, with su subtle nuance, I mean, you can be one where you kill an enemy, that's one word, or kill an intruder in your house, or kill somebody in warfare. This is a word which actually means to kill an animal. It's a degrading, let's kill, I mean, I don't want to, well, I'm not sure how you put it into English, but it's kind of like, let's kill that piece of junk. Let's, 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 cut his let's cut his throat. So yeah, it's graphic and it's strong. And the one thing you have to understand about all this is that to, um, to, to kill, J Jewish Judaism um, uh, believed in the absolute prohibition of murder, right? As you and I would, this is murder. It's killing somebody for your own gain. But to kill a brother, a, a, a biological brother was, was unimaginable. And so these boys say, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, why? What's their motive? Okay, could be. Yeah, it's, I mean, like anything else in life, there's lots of reasons, right? Could be jealousy. What else could it be? I could very, I'm sure it is jealousy in some, because given the language, let's, let's kill him, let's slit his throat, right? It's an, it's, it is an act of anger, inheritance. Right, but he's, the, but he's number seven in the lineage, so um, that could be part of it too. What else, but what else might it be? I'm sorry? He's a pain in the neck and he's, a, he's an irritant, okay. But the brothers killed, the brothers plot murder as a, there's 12 of them, right? Ever get 12 people to agree on anything? Hardly, right? The old joke, you can't get five Episcopalians in a room to agree on one thing, right? You can't get 12 people to agree on something. Is there a larger motive here? What would, what would motivate a, a, a group of brothers to murder, slay, shed the blood of one of their siblings? Could be jealousy, could be the kid's a jerk and a big mouth, could be inheritance or his dad's favor. What's actually at the root of it? What, what did Joseph tell them was the dream? That they would bow down to him. If they remove the boy, they don't bow down to him anymore. You see my point? What's at the root? Pride. Oh, it, oh, it always is. <laughs> huh? That's why Jesus was crucified. Exactly. Jesus is actually taken. Jesus, it's, a fair, it's a good point. And actually, let me back up. A lot of the early Christians, the church fathers, used Joseph as a type for Jesus. You see a lot of parallels, especially as we get into the story between Joseph being sacrificed, right? The blood of a goat being used to fool their father. Um, all these things that sort of type or a type or shadow of, of Jesus to come. But the point I want you to see here is that the root of their heart, where, where their brokenness comes from, is that multidimensional, sure, jealousy, anger, just frustration with the kid, but the root of all of it is their own skin. We're not gonna, I'm not gonna bow down to anything, right? And all of us, Every single one of you, including me, can reconcile with. We, can, we all have that in our hearts. I'm not bound down to anything, right? It's called pride. It's the root of all sin, by the way. Yes, Sarah? It's not clear to me, is it clear in all this passage, was had they really planned ahead to slaughter him or perhaps murmured among themselves, or was the fact that he arrived at a desolate area where there's no one else around that's a good question. Sarah's question is, did they conspire before he got there to kill him? 
I don't know. I would suspect they don't know that he's even coming, but the father, again, unwittingly sends him, and the brothers see him coming and hatch an idea, right? An opportunity, opportunity knocks. Then they come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. The pits are water cisterns. Um, then, we, then we will say, this is a conspiracy, that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. There's the motive. You see it? If we wipe him out, we'll see, it, we'll see what happens with his dreams. But it's his dreams that... That saved them. This is, the great, this is, again, the great irony of all this is they want to kill him to get rid of his dreams, but his dream is actually what saves them in their effort to try to kill him. I mean, do you see the layer? It's kind of a, it's wonderful. It's wonderfully how, 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 how much it turns. But look at this, verse 22, I'll point this out to you. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. So we can kill him, or we can let nature take its course, <laughs> but don't murder him. Now, why would Reuben say that? Where is Reuben in the birth order? Have a look at your little sheet. He's the first one, right? But there's a problem with Reuben. Does anybody know what the problem with Reuben is? Back in chapter 15, Reuben takes one of his father's favorite concubines and weds, uh, beds her, I guess you'd say that. And dad's mad. Hey, what are you doing? Right? So Reuben has already lost favor. Again, there's a lot of dysfunction here. Reuben has already lost favor with his father. And so maybe Reuben's saying to them, shed no blood. Is it because Reuben's somehow the good guy? No. It's because Reuben realizes he's lost primogeniture because of his betraying his father. And maybe he's trying to, maybe he himself can go back to dad later and say, dad, you know, they were going to kill the boy, but I saved his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, uh, this is it, Reuben says, that the, this tells you why he does it, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben's intention is to bring him back. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. Does that sound familiar? The robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. So this cloak actually demonstrates a couple of things. This, you see vesture, clothing with Joseph, a couple of times. Daddy gives him the, the beamer, the, the, this colorful cloak, as a symbol of his favor. His brothers rip it off of him and drip it in blood as a symbol of his murder. Later on, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, and in the process of him, him running away, she grabs his clothes, and he runs out naked, ostensibly. So you see this imagery of, of what Joseph's wearing coming, circling around over and over again. Don't miss it, because it's going to come back. And they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. <laughs> the idea, that's right, that's right, piece of cake. When the Jewish idea of sitting down to eat wasn't like you know, somebody brought in a bag of you know, Chick-fil-A or something, meaning that their brother, don't miss the irony, their brother is starving in a pit. They are sitting there eating while he's presumably crying out to them, right? They are eating while he starves in a pit, but yet, in God's providence and the great irony of Scripture, they would have starved if they hadn't put him in the pit in the first place and he got to Egypt. Does that make sense? So it's just so many facets to this. 
And looking up, here's another interesting thing. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Hey, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, let's go back to our chart and look at uh, Jacob. Sorry, uh, oh, he's not on here, Isaac. Isaac, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Esau. Uh, where's Ishmael here? No, no, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the first, son. oh, thank you, Father. Boy, you're clever. Um, Isaac, the, Abraham and Sarah, no, Abraham and Hagar had a son named Ishmael. He's over here, but he's not shown. Uh, he is the child of the slave woman who is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, who is cast out, right? And he become. remember back when it said that the Ishmaelites would be, uh, would be hunters and they would be people of the field. Okay, look down at your text here. Um, they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to Egypt. Ishmaelites are the sworn enemies of Isaac and Jacob's lineage. Do you see that? They're also Ishmaelites, modern day Muslims. So what the brothers don't just sell them to any old passerby. They sell them to people who are the, um, who were their sworn enemies, the Ishmaelites. So don't, just don't miss the subtle slap that God uses even Ishmaelites to fulfill his will. Do you see it? Um, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit in it is we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's, uh, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, also known as Midianites, by the way. And let us not, let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Are they motivated by money or compassion? Money. Maybe, maybe it's a mixture of both. Maybe they're, having, maybe they're having remorse. They see an opportunity. Maybe they've had lunch. They've cooled down a little bit. And they say, Ishmaelites, yeah, they'll treat him well. Let's sell him to the... Because maybe the Ishmaelites will kill him for us. Who knows? And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders, the Midianites and Ishmaelites are the same thing, uh, passed by. And they, the word there means the brothers, drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, the price of a slave. And I love this last little nugget. Ready for this? They took Joseph to Egypt. <laughs> after all that, right? After all that dysfunction and um, misery and betrayal, and even the Ishmaelites showing up, who are the sworn enemies of the, of the Israelites, right? And all that antagonism, despite all that, the Holy Spirit says to us through the scripture, and they took Joseph to Egypt just like God needed. What do you make of that? Anybody learn anything today? Yeah. What do you think? I feel like we've been caught in a spiral. It's it, circular, but it continues going on and on. And my, it's amazing. My seminary professor once said that reading scripture is like peeling an onion. You ever peel an onion? There's an outward layer, and you go, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then you peel it away to the next inner core and you go, oh wow, that's really interesting. And then you peel a little further. The surface layer is never, there's no mystery, there's no hidden knowledge, there's none of that anywhere in scripture. But there is stuff that are connections that are all over the place, like a web, that when you begin to peel it away and really study it, you go, holy smokes, this is just so, this is, 
and maybe somebody, maybe even Lynn could comment on this, in terms of ancient literature, scripture is, is beautiful. And it's amazing to read. And a child could read this story and get the surface meaning. And then a biblical scholar could spend 20 years on the same text and still come up with the same meaning, but at a deeper level. Does that make sense, everybody? I hope, I hope I'm, one of my goals in this class is to try to expose you to the wonder of how the Bible works. Any observations? Are you seeing a little, a little nugget of that, maybe? I hope. Um, it is the wonder of how God works. Because he has never... Right, Janie, Janie said, the wonder of it is that God works, that he is not thwarted. No matter what you and I do, and you and I can do lots of things against his will. Does he want us to do it? No. But can he accomplish his will through it? Absolutely. Anybody know Romans chapter 8, verse 28? All things work to good for those who trust the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Meaning, even though your life may be a great big mess, and if it's not now, it will be soon. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm just, look, my job is to be a realist with y'all and be an encourager, but be realistic. So, what's that? No, no, it is, actually, it is positive because what it says is no matter where you are, God's got it. All things, it doesn't say some things worked good. Is all things work to good, which all these little sinful, broken things that his brothers and his father and the Israelites do to him, all those things still work to get you to verse 28. They took Joseph to Egypt. Right? One thing I want to draw to your attention, then I'll wrap up in a second. Um, when Reuben, re Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, which is a symbol of, of anguish. And returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, what, and where shall I go? They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. Then they, took, then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father, said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Not our brother's robe, your son's robe. Can anybody remember way back when this same Jacob put on an outfit, a robe of goat's hair, and went to the old man and fooled him. Don't miss the, don't miss the idea that jo Jacob, who was once the deceiver of his father with the skin of a goat, has now himself been deceived by his own sons by the skin of a goat. Point? Uh, comes around, goes around, in, in one sense, but the point I want you to see, too, is that, um, again, the big pastoral issue here, the big pastoral point, is no matter the stupid things you and I do, and there's lots of stupid things we do, God's will is not thwarted. It requires us to repent, come back to him, but he's, he's faithful. Questions, comments? I've got two minutes, two or three minutes. Yes, Lynn? I'm just thinking, always one of my most favorite verses from the Bible was, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And if you think about that in terms of almost anything. That's right, almost anything. Yes, that's a good point. When we get to the Joseph story, when his brothers confront him, and it's a, read it, you can read it, it's in chapter 50, it's not a hard read. Um, when his brothers, this is years later, his brothers finally come, his dad thought he's dead the whole time, you know, and 
But Joseph has learned in the course, because Joseph's on a journey too, right? Joseph has learned that despite the fact that his brothers sold him down the river, and of course he's angry and frustrated about that, but in hindsight he can look back, and when they show up, he says to them, and they're all totally broken because of what they've done to him and the, and the anguish they've caused their father. And Joseph says, hang on, hang on, bros. I've learned an important lesson here, that you meant it for evil, and they did. But God used it for good. And, and that's another really good pastoral point, that when you and I are in the midst of a, a struggle and suffering, don't begin to fool yourself to think, you know, oh, it's okay, everything's gonna be great. Because when you and I are in the middle of suffering, we don't think that way. <laughs> Right? When you're in the middle of it, you never think, oh, it's going to be fine. You don't. And, and, if you're, and don't ever say to one of your friends, it's going to be fine, because you know what? They don't want to hear it when they're in the middle of a, of a real tragedy. But one thing I will say to you as a pastoral point is what Joseph did. He could see where, he could look back on it after the fact and say, you know, I've learned something here that even though you guys did all this terrible stuff to me, I can see that God still used it for good. You guys tried to kill me, but actually he brought me here so I could save you. Sound familiar? <laughs> you guys tried to kill me, but I let you kill me so that I could save you. That's Jesus, by the way, not me, <laughs> Joseph. Any questions? Great stuff. Yes, Carol. I th okay, that's a good question. I, off, off the top of my head, if anybody knows, chime in. I think the period of time that Joseph was in Egypt running the show is something like 18 years. It's a long time. It gives you a lot of time to think, right? You're, suffer you're struggling. I mean, read it in there. You can piece it together. I think there's two, there's seven years of feast and seven years of famine, I think. I have to look back. So it's probably something in the neighborhood of 15, 17 years. It's a long time. Yeah, so this isn't on an overnight. Anyway, anything else? Anybody learn something today? What'd you learn? What'd you learn? They that this God's got a plan, and you and I are a part of it. So even if you get sold into Egypt, really or metaphorically, uh, don't despair, because God's got it. And uh, it might not, it's not going to be obvious to you when you're in the middle of it. But here's another pastoral thing, and I'll wrap up. Think back in your own life when you were in Egypt 15 years ago, and now look at where you are now, or not even that long ago. Recently, when God caused something in your life which caused you to completely be distraught, Anybody have something? Of course you do. Raise your hand. Oh, raise your hand. Think, where am I now? Right? And think, how has God gotten you from there to here? Because that's how you learn to trust God when you see that he's trustworthy. Amen? So we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you again for your word, which challenges us, which teaches us, which shows us that despite our own sin and brokenness and the sin and brokenness of people around us, your will is not thwarted. Uh, Lord, help us to see the big picture. Help us to see the forest for the trees. Help us to not get stuck in the weeds and yet rather to see your plan and be trusting in that plan even when we don't see it, knowing that you are in control of all things and that all things work to good for those who trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.